Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 27 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or if you would like a, a new Bible, we have Bibles in the back there. Feel free to stand up and grab that. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you've got God's Word in your hand. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, uh, let me do a review we continue our study in Matthew's gospel here. We're specifically studying Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. This sermon by Jesus is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever. And, uh, you know, we're in the part of the sermon where the topics are just a bit uncomfortable for many of us. Uh, we spent the last two weeks learning about anger and the reconciliation that's needed because of our anger. And for the next two weeks, Jesus is going to change the topic here from anger to adultery. And then after adultery, he's going to move on to divorce. And I've had a, a few people come up to me after last week and they said, you know, Dustin, you really don't have to dilly-dally in through the next couple texts here. You can just kind of breeze on through these. We're going to be just fine. So in other words, right, get to the good stuff. Get to all the miracles and, and the forgiveness of sin and, and how much Jesus loves me. That, that's what we're here for. Well, you know, the amazing thing about preaching through the, the Bible verse by verse is that God, he doesn't allow us to miss the blessing of talking and learning about the hard things in life. Especially those things that we know are hard and, and the things that, that we feel guilty about because of our decisions, our past decisions, or maybe some of the things that we struggle with today. So dear friends, look, I, I know that some of these conversations are difficult and yet they're supposed to be. And there's a reason that you're here today. And that reason is to know, it is to understand the truth and the grace of God's word, and then how to apply all of this to our own lives. Difficulties, trials, tribulations, that's how Christ conforms us. That's how Christ transforms us as well. I mean, if, if we're not being changed by experiencing God verse by verse, and then sharing Jesus day by day, what's the point? There's got to be a point to all of this, right? And that is in the, that's in the conforming. God's changing us from the inside out. So it is good to wrestle with, with God in, in these areas. And I, I want to encourage you to run into his arms and not run away from him as we talk about these very, very important issues over the next month. Well, as I mentioned last week, we discussed reconciliation. Uh, quick review on that. Reconciliation is the mending of a broken relationship. It's to be at peace with one another. And two of the key points that we 
we talked about last week is number one, reconciliation precedes worship. It precedes worship. God wants us to take care of those horizontal relationships before we take care of the vertical one. And number two, the, the time for reconciliation is always right now. It's always today. Um, tomorrow may be too late. So in other words, before we, we come to worship God, we have to get right with those people who have irritated us. Those people who, who we know that are angry with us. And Jesus taught us how to do that last week. Now, today's topic is one that people are either really interested in or they shy away from altogether. The world worships this issue. It is its own religion. We are bombarded by this day and night, and we live in a world that is completely obsessed with it. And unfortunately, many churches either have adopted the world's view, or we're so calloused by it that we don't understand the significance of this issue in our own life. So the topic is not just sex today. It is sexual sin, specifically adultery. Uh, on a personal note, unfortunately, I know more than I want to in this area of ministry. Uh, I spent a decade pastoring men who struggled with some type of sexual sin in Phoenix before the Lord moved Amy and I here to Cottonwood. And that ministry was formed from my own testimony. So many of you guys know my story. I'm, I'm not going to get into any of that um, today. For those of you who would like to hear somewhat of my testimony, uh, you can jump on the website. And it, I went through some of that when we were going through the Gospel of Mark. And it's, uh, the title of that message is called Discussing Divorce. And that's in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. All that to say this. As I teach and preach today's message, I, I pray that you guys know that I'm, I'm for you and that I love you. All right, we're on the same team here. I'm on your side. Uh, and my prayer for you this morning is that you would hear a Heavenly Father's plea regarding adultery. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture today. T today's message has more Scripture than any, anything that I think I've preached over the past four years. And the reason for that is that when we read God's Word, we hear His voice. And when we hear God's voice, he's the one that's going to provide the application as to what we're going to do with the truth and the grace that's been given to us this morning. Fair enough? Fair. All right. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, well, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, well, cut it off and, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated.
take a deeper look here at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus taught about murder from last week, Jesus now teaches in a similar fashion about adultery. It's not a coincidence here that Jesus puts both of these topics back to back within his Sermon on the Mount. Anger and sex are two of the most powerful human experiences. Both of these things reach deep into the sinfulness of our own hearts. Um, Jesus starts the same way he did with the topic of, of anger. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So Jesus, again, what he's doing, he's contrasting the superficial biblical misinterpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees with his own interpretation that is both truthful and just. So back to verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Jesus taught about the sixth commandment last week, do not murder. Now he's teaching about the seventh today. Now we've all heard the jokes about how the 10 commandments should be more like the 10 suggestions, right? However, this command really regarding adultery in the world that we live in, it's not even a suggestion anymore. In our culture, this commandment is ridiculously and shamefully comical. I mean, day in and day out, we are fed the narrative of, of fast food sex. So what I would like to do this morning is invite you into the biblical narrative of why. Why adultery is on God's top 10 list of things not to do. Out of all my years of marriage counseling and, and specifically addiction-based counseling in sexual sin, I've never had anybody say something like this to me. You know, Dustin, committing adultery is one of the best decisions I've ever made. <laughs> no one's ever said that to me. Instead, committing adultery is the fastest way to ruin your life. And in a way, the world knows that, but it doesn't. This conversation on adultery is really, it's quite the paradox. So today, I'd like to somehow transport all of us from this hyper-sexualized 21st century world in which we live and move us into a heavenly classroom. See, if, if we don't make that shift our, our worldview, our experiences will prevent us from hearing the truth from God's word. Believe it or not, God says that adultery is one of the most despicable and detestable sins that someone can commit. Adultery is so heinous, in fact, that it was punishable by death. Now, I say that, and it's so hard for us to even grasp that's hard for us to conceive. How can God be so against something over here that is so celebrated today? So once again, I want to invite you out of our current worldview into God's. So let's, let's see what he has to say about adultery. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we think about adultery. It only matters what he says. Now, there's, there's not one 
scripture passage that gives this command, but there's two. So let's start here in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. And look at this. You must purge the evil from Israel. So in other words, you must remove the morally objectionable behavior from the nation. You choose to commit adultery, you choose to die. And not only do you choose to die, but guys, this was a, a public execution. It's an example to the nation just in case somebody was thinking about something they weren't supposed to. So the question becomes, all right, why? Why is adultery so wicked? Why is it in God's sight so repugnant? Why does God command the death penalty for adultery? I mean, where, where's God's love? Where's his grace? Where, where's his mercy in that? Well, as we fast forward to today, we all know, right? There's no judicial consequences for adultery. Nobody's going to jail, let alone the electric chair for committing adultery in our day and age. In fact, the, the world, along with many churches today, they laugh at this statement that we're studying. They laugh at it. Matthew 5.28, Jesus says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So throughout studying Jesus' sermon on the mount here, we're learning that Jesus is not raising the standard of the Old Testament law. What he's doing, he's teaching the law as it was given he did it with anger last week, and today he's doing it with adultery. So if Jesus isn't raising the bar on morality, and he's certainly not lowering the bar, what's he doing? What are we missing today? Well, I think for us to understand adultery, we have to understand the significance of the divinely appointed institution of marriage. That brings us to key point number one. To understand the sinfulness of adultery, we must first understand the mystery of marriage. And to understand the mystery of marriage, we have to rewind. We have to go back to the very beginning of, of God's story. This conversation about marriage begins in Genesis 1. So let me show you this. Let's start here at the very beginning. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, I want you to notice that word man. Contrary to popular belief, this man is not a person named Adam. Not yet. The Hebrew word is Adam. And Adam means humankind. It means mankind means humanity. So that brings us to key point number two. Adam is a person who represents all of humanity. 
Adam is a person who represents all of humanity. So, in other words, Adam is not some dude named Adam in this text. Somehow, in some way, Adam is different because he represents all of mankind. We don't know how. It could be physically. It could be spiritually. It could be both. But let's flip the page here to see the specifics of what God's talking about. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man. That's Adam. Out of the dust from the ground, he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man, the Adam, became a living being. So before we move forward, we all have to kind of grasp what, who Adam is. Y'all tracking with me on this? Adam is a person that represents all of mankind. We don't know how he's different, but he is. And then God says, well, he was formed from the ground and the dust of the ground. And that word form there, it really describes the work of an artist. God is taking his time here. He is in no hurry. He's enjoying himself creating mankind. So back to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the Adam out of the dust from the ground. I love this little side note, out of the dust. Dust can refer to ashes or debris or rubbish. It's even defined as crumbs of the earth. Don't you love that? Just crumbs of the earth. How much is dust worth? Nothing, right? People will pay for dirt and mud and clay when they're landscaping their yard, but you're not going to pay for dust. You pay for another person to remove the dust from your home. Pretty interesting, right? That we are created from the crumbs of the earth. So to think that human beings are not just made from the ground, but from the dust and the ground, back to Genesis 2, uh, verse 7 here, the Lord God formed the Adam out of the dust from the ground. That Hebrew word for ground is Adama. Adama. Does that sound a little familiar? Key point number three, from the ground, Adama, God creates Adam. From the ground, from the dust of the ground, Adama, God creates Adam. So mankind is a person, once again, he represents all of humanity. So we start to see the story that God's telling here. We skip down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make a helper corresponding to him. Your translation may say uh, a helper fit or suitable for him. Now, I want you to notice here, this is the first time that God states that something is not good. Everything else was good up to this point. So God decides to do something about this issue. Skip down to verse 21 in chapter 2. So the Lord God, he caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, and he slept. And then God took one of his ribs, and he closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the Adam into a woman, and he brought her to the Adam. So we got a lot going on in this verse. Let's take a look at that word rib. 
growing up, when I heard this story, and I've always been fascinated, even as a kid, at this story, I always understood it as, okay, this is one single rib bone that was taken from a person named Adam. So what I did is I placed my worldview on the text, my opinion on the text. That's not a good thing to do. But if we look at the word rib, the Hebrew word is selah. Selah. So key point number four for us, selah is translated as rib, side, or the entire side chamber. So your collarbone to your waist, that is your side chamber, this whole thing. So question, is it possible that God, instead of taking one single rib bone from Adam, that God split Adam almost in half, taking this to this all the way out to create woman? I've always pictured it as a kind of a clean, very simple, outpatient operation. <laughs> I don't think it was. Back to verse 22. The Lord God made the rib, or we could say the side chamber. He took that whole side chamber. He had taken that from Adam, and he made it into a woman. This, of course, includes the flesh, the bone, and of course, blood. And look what happens in verse 22 after he does that. He creates woman, and then he brought her to the Adam. He brought her to the man. The Lord is now bringing this woman to the man. So this presumes that there's distance between the two. So let me ask you, what does this look like? What event does this look like to you? We've got God, the father. We've got God, who is a father. He is now bringing a woman, his daughter, to be introduced to a man and to be given away. Does this resemble something? A father walking his daughter down the aisle to be given away? I mean, of course it does. Look, look how Adam responds here in verse 23. He said, this one, <laughs> this one at last, bone, listen to the words now, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is really where it gets interesting. Have you ever wondered why the words woman and man are, are capitalized or italicized in your Bible? Now, if you got the CSB, um, they, they put quotations around woman. They don't do with that with man, but most English translations do. And the reason that they do is because something dramatic just happened. The Hebrew word for woman in verse 23 is isha. And the word for man has changed. It's no longer Adam. For the first time in the story, the word for man is not Adam, it's ish. So now we've got Ish and Isha, man and woman, husband and wife. So I want you to think about that. Adam was consistently called Adam up until this point, but now something is very, very different. He's not the same, is he? A large part of him is gone. 
And it's in this verse that Adam no longer represents the entire human race, but rather God specifically creates two beings, Ish and Ishah, from Adam. Verse 23 is, is where God transforms Adam into Adam, and this is where we see his proper name. So, key point number five. God uses Adama, the ground, to create Adam, which is mankind, who then becomes Adam. Adama, Adam, Adam. Back to verse 20, or moving on to verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Why does a man bond with his wife? Because she was taken out of him in verse 23. So this idea of bonding and holding fast is, is the concept of husband and wife clinging together. Verse 24 points to a strategically committed relationship that includes sex. That becoming one flesh there, right? Verse 24 is where God defines sex, sexuality, and gender. What they are and also what they're not. So let's define some terms here. Key point number six. This idea of becoming one flesh, sex, it is the exclusive activity that, de that defines the marriage relationship. Becoming one flesh is the exclusive activity that defines the marriage relationship. So in other words, it is the single activity that is reserved for husband and wife. Why only husband and wife? Well, let me ask it this way. What happens when husband and wife become one flesh? We've got Ish and Isha, right? And they come back together as one, representing what? Adam. Adam is where it all began. Does this explain the natural desire for companionship between men and women? Could this also explain the natural God-given sexual desires between men and women? It does. And not only that, but when you have two people made in the image of God and they, they come together as one, these two people have now have the capacity to create more human life that reflects the power of God. So let me give you this 21st century definition of marriage. I want to be crystal clear on this. Key point number seven, marriage is a lifelong blood covenant established by God between one biological man and one biological woman that is consummated, right? That it is completed, it is fulfilled with sexual oneness. That's Genesis 2.24. So that's the physical aspect of marriage. Let's now transition to the second element of marriage, and that's, that's the spiritual side of things. To understand the spiritual side of marriage, we must apply some of our systematic theology skills here. Uh, we got to study God's word throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We got to gather all of the things that are said about marriage and then look at them as a whole. And when we do this, God uses marriage as a spiritual illustration throughout the entire Bible. And he calls marriage a mystery. 
So let's start um, with the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says this in Ephesians 5.25. He says, husbands, love your wives. Don't just love them. Love them just as Christ loved the church and how Christ gave himself for the church. He did that to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, you are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for that for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we're members of his body. And it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two will become flesh. Verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. What's the mystery? He's talking about Christ and the church. So we're familiar with a man being called a husband, a woman, his bride. But in this text, we see a great mystery unfolding here. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is our spiritual groom. And we, as his church, we are his spiritual bride. So therefore, our physical marriages are much more important than we think. Key point number eight. Marriage is not only a physical union, but it's also a spiritual reality. Marriage is not only a physical union, but it's also a spiritual reality. Look at this, Revelation 19.7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. So let's do a recap here. In Genesis 2, God creates the institution of marriage. In Revelation 19, we just learned that Jesus fulfills the covenant of marriage in his original design for all of this. I want you to think of those two marriages as bookends. And what God does through his word is he weaves this theme of marriage all the way through all 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. So ultimately, marriage is about intimacy, both physically and spiritually. And what makes earthly marriage so special is the private sexual union that is shared between husband and wife. Spiritually speaking, it's this idea of knowing one another and knowing one another intimately. Believe it or not, this idea of knowing is the, it's the same type of relationship that Jesus wants with his bride as well. And that's why he chose the analogy here of an earthly marriage in the first place. So let me show you a couple examples. Hosea chapter 2 verse 19. God says, I will take you to be my wife forever. Look at the commitment there. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, and love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness. The Lord is not going to walk out the door when things get tough. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. That word know there in Hebrew is yada. It's this idea that we develop a relationship 
relationship, both physically and spiritually, through experience. Over time, we become known, both in our earthly and our spiritual marriages. So we see this idea of being known, this idea of yada in both senses. Let me start with the physical. Genesis 4.1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived, and she bore Cain. Spiritual sense of Yadah is also found in Psalm 139. Look at this. Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. And verse 23, search me, God, know my heart, test me, and know my concerns. So understanding marriage here, we have to understand both of the mysteries, both the physical and the spiritual. The mystery of marriage, first and foremost, it paints the picture that Jesus Christ is the the perfect husband. While the church, that's us, all all the believers, right? We are his bride. So in our earthly marriages, they are designed to be a reflection of that supernatural reality that we cannot see. See, God established marriage before the first city was ever built, before any laws were penned, before any government formed, there was marriage So all that to say this, first and foremost, marriage is not about us, it's about God. Real marriage, biblical marriage is intended to change us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he is the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, but guys, he is also the groom of grooms. And it's through this covenantal relationship of marriage this commitment of God and our spouse where we find true joy, not just temporary happiness based on emotional sex. Emotional sex is simply a drug to numb the pain of our life. Sex by itself, it doesn't make a marriage strong. It simply adds to the overall emotional, spiritual, and physical health between husband and wife. Now, it's also why sex outside the marriage covenant is the fastest way to ruin your life. Adultery breaks this commitment, the one that you made to your spouse, and it's the same kind of commitment that God has made to you. So, all of that brings us back to verse 27 today. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery So what was God saying when he initially gave this commandment to Moses? What God was saying was, look, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. How many of you parents or grandparents have told your children, hey, 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 do not do that. Why'd you say that? You said those stern words because you didn't want them to get hurt. It's the same with God. When God says, do not commit adultery, what he's saying here is, if you do that, 
if you touch that person, if you continue to think and lust like that, you're going to hurt yourself. Rather than, than looking at God's commands as negative, believing this lie that God is this cosmic killjoy who doesn't want me to have any fun, is it possible that we can shift our, our thinking just a bit this morning? For all of us, just to take a breath here and, and to realize that God is for us. And lastly, I want to talk about the consequences of adultery. We looked at the most explicit earlier, but Scripture is filled with other warnings of, of sexual sin. And, and I want to share these with you before we get to the rest of this passage next week. And as I, I read these verses from Proverbs, I pray that your Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you hear your Heavenly Father speaking these words to you in the most loving tone. We're going to start at Proverbs chapter 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Then you will show discernment and your lips will express what you've learned. For the lips of an immoral woman, ah, they're sweet as honey. And her mouth, smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison. She is as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps leap straight to the grave. For she cares nothing about the path to life. She staggers down a crooked trail and she doesn't even realize it. So now sons, my sons, listen to me. Never stray from what I'm about to say. Stay away from her. Don't, don't go near the door of her house. Because if you do, you will lose your honor. And you will lose to merciless people all that you've achieved. Strangers will consume your wealth. And someone else will enjoy the fruit of your labor. In the end, you're going to groan in anguish. When disease consumes your body. And then you're going to say, well, I hated discipline. If only I had not ignored all the warnings. Oh, why? Why didn't I listen to my teachers? Why didn't I pay attention to my instructors? I've come to the brink of ruin, and now I must face public disgrace. Proverbs chapter 6 reiterates this conversation between a heavenly father and a son. He says, my son, obey your father's commands and don't neglect your mother's instruction. Keep their words always in your heart, tie them around your neck. And when you walk, their counsel will lead you. When you sleep, they will protect you. And when you wake up, they will advise you for their command is a lamp. It's an instruction. It's a light. Their corrective discipline is the way to life. It's going to keep you from that immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of a promiscuous woman. Don't lust for her beauty. Don't let her coy glances seduce you. 
for a prostitute will bring you to poverty, but sleeping with another man's wife, that's going to cost you your life. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and, and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. Proverbs chapter 7, follow my advice, my son. Always treasure my commands. Obey my commands and live. Guard my instructions as you guard your own eyes. Tie them on your fingers as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Love wisdom like a sister and, and make insight a beloved member of your family. Let them protect you from an affair with an immoral woman, from listening to the flattery of a promiscuous woman. Verse 6, you know, while I was at the window of my house, I was looking through the curtain, and I, I, I saw some naive young men, and there was one in particular who lacked common sense. He was crossing the street near the house of this immoral woman and strolling down the path by her house, and it was twilight, it was evening, Darkness was falling, and this woman approached him and seductively dressed, sly of heart. She was the brash, rebellious type, never, never content to stay at home. She's often in the markets, in the streets, soliciting at every corner. And, and then she threw her arms around him, and she kissed him, and with a brazen look, she said, you know, I've just made my peace offerings. And, my, and I've fulfilled my vows. You're the one that I've been looking for. I came out to find you, and guess what? There you are. My bed is spread with, with beautiful blankets, with colored sheets of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloe and cinnamon. Come, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Let's enjoy each other's caresses. For my husband, he's not even home. He's away on a long trip. He's, he's taken a, a wallet full of money with him. He's not going to return until later next month. So she seduced him with her pretty speech, enticed him with her flattery, and he followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. He was like a, a stag caught in a trap, awaiting the arrow that would pierce its heart. He was like a bird flying into a snare, little knowing that it would cost him his life. So listen to me, my sons. Pay attention to my words. Don't let your heart stray uh, towards her. Don't wander down that wayward path, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. And her bedroom is the den of death. Dear friends, that's the plea from our Heavenly Father regarding adultery. God gives us the consequences here before our decision to act upon our lust. When God says, do not commit 
adultery, what he's saying is, do not hurt yourself. Here's the good news. If you have lusted like I have, if you have committed adultery like I have, God's grace is way bigger than your sexual sin. You are never outside God's grace with repentance. How do I know this? I know this because of what God's word tells me. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? John chapter 8. These religious muckety-mucks bring this woman, without the man, by the way, to Jesus. And they're, re they're ready to kill her as the law states. And they're going on and on and on about how self-righteous they are because they've never physically committed adultery. And Jesus levels them. And at the end of the conversation, Jesus says this. He says, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? In other words, has anybody judged you as guilty for your adultery? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says this. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. So go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Father in heaven, what an amazing commandment that you've given to us. Thank you, Father, that it, this commandment is out of love. You do not want to see your children hurt. Thank you for teaching us and pulling us outside of our 21st century over-sexualized world and, and showing us the beauty of marriage, the mystery of marriage. And next week, as we continue talking about the mystery of marriage, we're going to dive into the, the sinfulness of lust and adultery. And, and now that we've got your perspective on that, may we continue to do some business with you this week. And may your word provide the hope that we can run into your arms and repent from our sin so that we don't have to sin anymore. We can choose not to do what we've always done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.